Sally Belanger is a movement optimization specialist who works with top pro and Olympic level athletes in the NHL, NFL, and more. In our conversation, we talk about how she's developed her business to work specifically with this population and some of the details of her unique approach and opportunities that she sees in education and business in today's evolving climate. So I want to see that you can move in all planes of motion at a joint well, and you're not going to be, it's not going to be equal, especially in sport. I don't think there's any sport that is biomechanically good for your body, but they're damn fun to do. So you've got to find the balance, which is where I come in. Because any sport you do, you're going to destroy your body biomechanically, especially if you're at an elite level, because you do the same movements again and again and again and again. I'm Fraser Quelch, and this is a TRX Procast, where we chat with the most iconic leaders in fitness to get the inside track on what it takes to thrive and succeed in the ever-changing landscape of business, training, and life. So I love sports. I love movements. I love analyzing movements. So I have the opportunity and, I don't know, the good fortune to try and teach people how to move the proper way for either performance enhancement movements or or mechanical efficiency or in a post-rehabilitative way. So I get to try and teach people how to use the right muscles in the right order for proper movement patterning in, in a high level. Okay. Well, we'll definitely, I definitely want to dig into that a bunch because um, I think your approach is really, really interesting, but let's back it up a little bit. So tell me about your background, like what shaped and influenced Sally Belanger? Like, who are you, who are you like growing up? What, uh, what, what kind of led you? Along the my, mom, my mom is a high school phys ed teacher and my dad loves sports, could not get enough sports. He basically almost failed out of high school because he played so much sports. Basketball fanatic. I grew up watching hockey, football, and basketball with my dad constantly. And I remember being in grade 13 phys uh, ed class, which tells you how old I am if I did grade 13. But I remember looking at the skeleton and we were filling it in and I thought, this is freaking cool. And then we put the muscles on top of it and I, I, was, I was hooked. I'm like, I need to figure out how the system works. I remember taking it home that night and watching a football game with my dad and watching the CFL because it's Ontario. So we were watching the football game and I remember trying to figure out how the quarterback could do that movement using the muscles and the levers that I had just learned about earlier that day. And I thought, I need to do this. I need to figure out how this works and how I can make a difference. Fast forward, we end up in Western Canada. Um, I followed my boyfriend out, got a job at the Y and ended up marrying my boyfriend. But Worked at the Y for three years, and I met a good friend at the Y, actually. He decided not to speak to me when I first met him, but we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> Who could you be talking about at this stage? Um, regardless. So at the Y, I had the opportunity to teach fitness instructors how to be fitness instructors, whether it was in strength and conditioning, aquafit, spinning, aerobics. And it was really fun to teach people how to use the body anatomically correctly, how to find the proper biomechanic pattern or biomechanical pattern, and then try and figure out what was wrong with movement. Like that just stuck there to be able to teach that to people learning fitness and to be able to analyze it constantly in movement. Um, that, that was just, it took me down a path like a rabbit hole. Like I just can't get enough of it. I love to watch movement and I love to figure out where, where it's going wrong and how we can fix it. When so it sounds like your, your, your passion as it unfolded. So first of all, it, it sounds like a bit of an epiphany, like yeah. that moment when you were grade 13 and they showed you and for you know, the people who didn't grow up in Ontario, 
grade 13 was actually a university prep year that they used to have instituted and, and I went through a grade 13 as well. Um, but so at that moment in grade 13, when you saw the skeletons loaded the muscular, muscular system on top of that and you went, Oh yeah. Wow. It was, it was and then like, away you went. It was wild. And it's to this day, I still look at the body and when I watch movement, I picture levers and pulleys and what muscles. So when I look at movement, it's, it's, it, you see mechanical efficiency, you see good movement, but then I break it down to what muscles pulling on that and how is that counteracted by this? And it's a constant puzzle of angles in my head. And it goes back to that moment in grade 13 where like, this is freaking cool. I need more of that. And as we go along, you'll have to remind me to bring it back up because I don't want to jump around all over the place, but the concept of tensegrity, I'm interested in, in, um, in yeah. your, your thoughts around it. So now you're in Western Canada, you're working at the Y as, as the, uh, as the aerobics director, meeting all kinds of really amazing people. Um, Speak to me at the time. <laughs> you might have been amazing. <laughs> moving on. Sorry, moving on. But at that point, you're teaching, but it sounds like your real passion underneath was more in looking at movement, yeah. movement faults to some extent, trying to uh, things that are out of sequence and trying to improve that for optimal performance as opposed to the teaching, the delivery of the actual experience yeah. itself. So I have, have found myself in two really unique situations. One, I get to work with professional athletes a ton. Do I get to teach physiotherapists or chiropractors or fitness professionals how to load the body appropriately? And we can talk about that a bit in a, in a, in a while, but it's really fun to watch somebody move and to figure out what they could be wrong, doing wrong when they're not even aware of what they can be doing wrong. And then the difference of how they feel when they're moving well, I call it floating. So when you're shooting a basketball, running, doing a hurdling event, when you have mechanical efficiency, you float. And when you can figure out how to use your muscles in the pr proper order, then you get that floating feeling, you get performance, you get tissue healing, you get injury prevention. It's just all these things that fall out of doing such simple and lots of people call them boring, boring movements, and they are. But when you do them well, the, the benefit at the end is, it, it's kind of like an addictive high that you, you've got to get more of, to figure it out and to feel it. So, and I want to, because you just kind of casually mentioned that you're working with really high level athletes, but right now your business is, I think when we were talking earlier, like more than 50% of it is working with professional athletes, primarily NHL hockey players, but also some, some other athletes, football players and, and others in the mix. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I've had the, the great fortune, like I've had bobsledders, skeleton, hurlers, basketball, CFL, NFL, NHL. I get a whole gamut of people I get to work with. And it's fun because you have to go back and you have to analyze what they do within their sport and how they move and then take it to how we're going to break it down, how they cheat in their regular movement patterns and put the whole system back together. So, so how do you bridge the gap? I want to get into the process in a bit. But first of all, I want to understand how do you bridge the gap from teaching group fitness at a YMCA in Western Canada to working with some of the top athletes on the planet. So how, how does that come to be? That's a good question. When I graduated from university, my first job was in a uh, fitness club in Kingston, Ontario, and I was folding towels and welcoming people into the gym. And I was also teaching a ton of aerobics. And at the time, if we remember back to that stage, that's when the- I've repressed that stage. 
because we could all sock it into a box far, far away. Totally. If your scrunchie matched your socks and your socks matched your bra top, which somehow ended on the outside of your Lycra. And I thought, okay, this is fun. I love it. It's amazing. But there's got to be more to it than this. So fast forward, I work at the Y. There was nothing more to fitness than the fashion of the late 1980s and early 90s. No, there's there's nothing more. It's really the the pinnacle. No, the pictures should be burnt and put away forever. Although we all looked very good doing it, I'm sure. Okay, so moving on. I end up in Western Canada, and then I get to teach. I get to teach the anatomy and biomechanics to the YMCA had an amazing trainer program. So we got to train people about, here's the anatomy of what you do. Here's the biomechanics of what you do. And then you got to put it into choreography. And I thought, this is really cool. But sometimes people get stuck in the choreography. So the science of it is brilliant and the movement is brilliant. But there's this little piece of the choreography that people just kind of hung on to. And I understand you need that when you learn any methodology. You need the choreography because you've got to start with something. But there was a bit of a disconnect. And at that time, I was in my late 20s. And we all had that epiphany in our career where like, I need to do something different. So we moved back to Toronto and I got a job with Stop Pilates, but I was hired as the office manager because I was done with fitness. I was going to get an office job. I was going to grow up and I was going to move on. And to know me, you know that that's a terrible idea. My whole philosophy in life is that you've got to play and laugh with as many good people as possible while you learn. So I took a job behind a desk for nine months and I discovered quickly there's only so many times you can go to the printer and back, to the water cooler and back out to the gym to check on things. Like I was like a little rabbit going back and forth. And quite mm-hmm. frankly, I was terrible at the job. It was awful. At the time, Stop Pilates, um, I went to Moira, who created Stop Pilates, and it's now called Marathi Corporation, but at the time it was Stop Pilates. And I asked if I could take the certification. She kind of looked at me. And I took the certification, and I went on to become a master of trainers, and I did the curriculum. And during that probably 15-year period, What Pilates does exceptionally well is it looks at movement in a very minute way. So I had this sports background. I had this training background from the Y. I had teaching from many different methodologies of teaching. And then I had this Pilates focus on little movements. So the whole thing kind of came together. In 2002, I was asked to work with a couple of the Toronto Maple Leafs just by fluke. It just happened. I was in the right room at the right time. And Moira knew I had a sports background. She said, well, you can talk about sports. Why don't you go? And it was an epiphany of everything kind of came together all at once. And I got to work on this amazing athletic body that was kinesthetically aware, proprioceptively in tune. And I could make a change in one part of the body and watch this whole little sequence of events happen all the way down to another limb. And that was probably the moment that I thought, I need to do more of this. This is absolutely phenomenal. So you're in the right room at the right time and you get this opportunity to go and do what you do and, mm-hmm. and really enjoy it. So it strikes me that, you know, I'm imagining in my mind an NHL hockey player, <laughs> probably in his mid twenties. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could be there. His, yes. His, well, I wasn't, that's not where I was going, um, <laughs> but you know, whatever happened, happened. Um, the, <laughs> No, no. <laughs> but I'm thinking, so the, the attitude of, around training and, and um, athletic development to a 25-year-old hockey player, it, Pilates is not the first thing that's coming to mind to no. this person at all. So what's that like as you, like, how do you garner the trust of 
this individual who's essentially like worth millions of dollars to his organization probably is not lacking any kind of self-confidence or sense of self uh, as they roll along. And then, you know, here comes Sally, who's now going to get you to think on the minutest level about, you know, some muscle. I mean, so how do you get that person to buy in? Because I think a lot of people listening are probably like, yeah, like I want to make this change. How do I get these people to buy in? And so they can see the results. It's, that's a really good question, Fraser. Um, what I do now, I don't describe as Pilates per se. And at the time when they came in, I didn't say you were about to do Pilates because at 2000, 2002, it carried very much the weight of not a hockey player who would do it. It was a very different crowd stereotype that would come and do Pilates. Sure. And oftentimes, to be honest, when, when I started, these guys would be sent to go do some form of Pilates, yoga, whatever the strength and conditioning coach was sending them to do because often they had an injury. So... Mm -hmm. I often became their last chance before surgery. So I think the first leaf I saw had a, he had a labral tear and he also had a dislocated shoulder and he was on his fourth concussion. So I thought, okay, well. So at this point, he's willing to do just about yeah. anything in order to keep his career. And so he's being paid 100%. to tolerate you and who knows, maybe it'll work. We, we need to reword that. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the marketing we're going for. <laughs> I wasn't talking about from it. That was my marketing, my marketing voice. No. Okay. So yeah, basically when they started coming 20 years ago, mm -hmm. it was, it was the last chance you, it was like, okay, I'm either here or I'm going to go see the team's orthopedic surgeon. And then I've got rehab regardless. So mm -hmm. the first two guys who came in, it was a very different swing. So basically in order to get a 25 year old, and I use this lovingly, testosterone-filled man at the time yeah. who is used to doing everything well and used to being told he did everything well. Um, if you know me, you know that I can see movement. I'm not, I'm not fast. I'm not powerful. I don't sprint. You kept a very straight face. That was very good. Um, but I don't look like I go to the gym often. I look like I ride a bike a lot, mm -hmm. and I don't look like I go to the gym. So I've got to be able to sell it to this client who's got to feel better, but also uh, get his ass kicked a little bit. Because mm -hmm. if he doesn't do something or she doesn't do something that's going to feel different in their body or I can do something that they can't do, all of a sudden they're looking at me thinking, what is it that that person has that I don't have? But I've got to do it in a realm that I'm not going to injure them. Mm -hmm. So there was about, at the time, to be honest with you, there's about 10 core movements that I could do really well that were hard, but I'd mm -hmm. practice them for right. months and years. So I'd look at a 25-year-old and say, okay, do this. And they'd look at me thinking, okay, if she can do it, so can I. And they'd try it and bam, they'd be on the ground or they'd be shaking or they'd be swearing or why can you do this and I can't. Right. And then if you can equate it to their sport and why it's important to them. And you I think it. this is where people get stuck. It's not important to me as a mm -hmm. trainer. It's important to why is it good for your athlete? What is it going to benefit to them or what benefit is it to them in their job? Not in your job as a trainer. Mm-hmm. So I think that was, at the time, selling it then. Now people come because in the, in the athletic world, it's world of mouth marketing. It's a trust thing. And if you know me, you know I'm terrible at social media. I've been told for years I should do social media, but I'm terrible. So it's, it's I think all it's just directionally challenged. You just can't find social media. <laughs> I have nothing to say to that. <laughs> um 
we'll discuss that later. But no, but fair enough. I mean, th- th- that idea of so you you know you have these two guys that come in, they're you know last chance before the before the the surgery table, and mm-hmm. they're like, I'll do just about anything. So you've got my attention, and then yeah. you you further get their attention by giving them something that's going to help them, but also that you know is is going to be they're probably going to fail at initially. They did. Um, yeah. Not so much to set them up for failure, but that, Hey, this is going to be, this is going to get their attention. It's literally an attention grabber. And then you do your work and, and presumably you get them off the potential surgery, surgery rotation right. and back into their sport. And they're thinking to themselves, my God, that was really effective. And then hence the word of mouth whereby Yep. You know, if you, people you're working with and the athletic trainer who sent them to you said, wow, this girl got great results. Now you've got a referral network. That's a, that's a, and you've got to use that referral network. The other thing I would mention is you have to speak their language. So in 2002, everybody was still talking very Pilates terms of long lean muscles, flexibility. That's great. A 25-year-old who has to cross-check somebody else across a line doesn't care about long lean muscles. I have to be able to say, look, when you're going on the point or you've got your slap shot if you're a goalie if you're up against the post if i'm not speaking their language and making the exercises totally correlate to what they need to do then there's no point in them ever coming back mm. they don't need to balance on their sits bones with their arms up in the air they need to actually hold somebody off the puck and be able to skate down the ice so to make those little minute really boring exercises beneficial to their actual job and their sports performance if they can see that and they can feel it on the ice, then you then you're adding benefit to their career. Let's talk then about because um, I mean I think that's really important just from a from a just a, a part of the concept around this podcast is business. And so how do you one how do you get to get in front of athletes like that we talked about, and then how do you continue to grow and expand your business? And, and I think you just you know, laid out a, a almost a template. As to one, you certainly got to recognize it when opportunity knocks and be in the right room at the right time and all that kind of thing. And then, and then, you know, go down that road from there. What are some of the, let's talk a little bit about your approach. So, you know, an athlete comes to you, you know, presumably are most of the people you see at this stage still in, in an injured state or are some of them now coming to you just, just like in the off season of this is an important part of what my training is. So I I have both. I have people who are injured and they're trying to figure out how to stay off the table. And I have Mm -hmm. people who come to me and say, all right, I have have an Olympic freestyle skier. And she's like, when I hit the rails, I do this really well. But when I launch off and try and do whatever it is she's doing up in the air, we've got to figure out how she can find that extra quarter turn in the air and what she's not doing right. So I certainly don't freestyle ski, but I have to be able to look at it and say, okay, so let's break this down. So I have both. I have performance athletes and I have post rehabilitative athletes currently. So someone comes to you, what, where do you start? So I, we always start with an assessment. And my first thing I say to people and, and one of my athletes, I actually asked her before this podcast, I said, okay, I'm, I'm speaking with a friend. And one of the things we may talk about is why athletes come back because the movements are boring. I obviously don't have a marketing degree, but the movements aren't fun and you do everything wrong and you get nagged. So why do you come back? And she, she said it perfectly. She said, because as an athlete, you realize it's incredibly frustrating to not be the master of your body in your studio. So you go into a new realm and you're used to being the best and you're used to doing everything well. And you're used to, you get a coach saying that was fantastic. You did this turn beautifully. 
just add this. Whereas when I get them, the first thing to your question is I look at how they cheat. So I tell them to do all these different assessments that we go through and I pick out all the things that they do. And generally I can find about five. So at the end of them, your thoracic spine might be stuck, your gait may be off, you pronate your left foot, maybe your glute meat on the right isn't firing, and your left adductor is hypertonic. And all of a sudden they're looking at you like this, like, well, what do you mean? Because I, I'm used to being the pinnacle of athleticism. I'm used to being the top and the creme de la creme. And then you start going through and you show them what they can do and how they get there. So we would start with an assessment where we pick out all the things that could be wrong and then basically my philosophy as you go through is if it's a continuum of training. So you start with the mobility. And when I say mobility, I'm not talking about flexibility or sit and reach test or mm-hmm. I'm talking about the actual axis of rotation of a joint. So mm-hmm. I want to see that you can move in all planes of motion at a joint. Well, and you're not going to be, it's not going to be equal, especially in sport. I don't think there's any sport that is biomechanically good for your body, but they're damn fun to do. So you've got to find the balance, which is where I come in. Because any sport you do, you're going to destroy your body biomechanically, especially if you're at an elite level because you do the same movements again and again and again and again. Then we find stability of the joints. So it's working those stabilizers to keep the joints in the proper alignment, regardless of the load imposed. And now here's the terrible, awful, boring part. Those muscles operate at less than 30% of a maximum voluntary contraction. So you're doing movements like take your arm out. Nope, that wasn't right. Take your arm out this way. Nope, that wasn't right. And at that point, people are well, what exactly do you want me to do this? And which is where the motor pathways start to come in. Mm -hmm. Once we get to that stage, then we work on the endurance of the stabilizer. So then we start to integrate that whole global system. Once you have those three, and that's where I basically live, then you Mm -hmm. can do strength, power, and sport. But you can't add strength, power, and sport onto a foundation that doesn't work. And the terrible, awful, boring thing about it is the literature suggests it's 3,000 to 5,000 repetitions in order to automate that system. Which means if I go and shoot the hoop, I'm doing this 3,000 to 5,000 times before I ever pass anybody else. I ever add a jump shot. I ever put a guard on top Mm -hmm. because I need that to be an automatic pattern. I need those local muscles and the whole integrated and isolated system to work together to stabilize against whatever load I decide. It needs to be 3,000 times the right way. Yes, there you go. And that's the fun part. Hence the nagging in the background. (laughs) So you essentially, people turn up to you and you basically tell them they suck five different ways. <laughs> you don't have a marketing degree either. And then, and then I'm just trying to I'm just trying to break it down. Um, but then, but then I presume, and then one thing you didn't talk about is that part of the hey, this is incorrect. Here's this isn't firing properly. Um, there's opportunity for improvement here. You must bridge the gap and and tell them why that means something to them. Totally. So. Yeah. Yes, it's fun. If you were, uh, let's pick a sport. So I have a defensive tackle. He played in the NFL. And we looked at how he does a sit to stand, which is basically a squat, a small mm-hmm. squat. And we broke down the different things that could be wrong, where his hip was behind, how he wasn't using his glutes eccentrically. And then we analyzed how he moved. So I looked at a, a tape of how he moved. First of all, defensive tackle done well, like those boys are fast like I had to watch that tape about six times to just even see where he went on the tape but then you break down to okay that sit to stand done properly equates to you pushing off the line right here and as soon as he's made that connect and he can see how that's going to work if he does this mm-hmm. to stand better and he can put it in his job where he takes off off the line then he starts to buy into what he's doing 
or if your downhill skier starts to find, okay, if you can find your knee alignment and your feet alignment and your glute meads, then when you're coming around the gate, she starts to feel, okay, when I'm actually on this angle trying to go around the gate, I see what you mean about that lateral stability. Okay, that makes sense. And now I can feel it. But the first time they really buy into it is when they feel it on the ice, on the pitch, on whatever surface they happen to be on. They feel that floating. Then they buy into the mechanical efficiency that they found by firing the right muscles in the right order. Which segues us into sequencing. Because you, you, began, you began with, hey, I look at mobility. You know, can they, can they, do they have access to a full range of motion, not passively, but actively? Mm-hmm. Um, across all the joints, the ones that you're, you're working on specifically. Then you talked about stability. Can they control, um, they can, can they, yeah, can they control the different positions that they actually have? Um, but now you just talked about sequencing, which is different. And Mm -hmm. then that's the, the order. And and before we go, there's an amazing analogy that Paul Czech, um, the first time I heard it was him was his bicycle wheel. I'm I'm reminding it is, is, Hey, if you have a wheel that's out of true, you don't just keep tightening the spokes that are too tight and loosen the ones that are too loose because it just pulls it further, further true. And so the idea of the mobility piece is, Hey, let's loosen off the spokes that are too tight. Let's tighten the ones that are too loose and pull the wheel in the line. So it runs smoothly and efficiently. A hundred percent. And you're right. I mean, every, every athlete, there's going to be an over pattern. And then the over pattern is, is a great example is um, uh, Raphael Nadal's right left arm versus his right arm. It's, it's so different. Right. And you ever notice when he celebrates, he throws his racket from his left hand to his right hand and makes the fist with his left hand because it looks way better on camera because the difference between his left bicep and his right bicep is unbelievable. Um, <laughs> so but, let's talk about sequencing as we go into it because how do you approach that? Now you've got them, you've got them aligned. The wheel is moving in true. Yeah. And now you've got to start to get them, I presume, you start off working minutely is what you describe. And now you've got to start to make it more integrated and, and then global to get the sequencing that you're talking about. So, and, and that's where it starts to get fun. So the first step, and I always find it harder, and I don't know if you do the same, is to inhibit a muscle group, especially an athletic population, is way harder, or a movement pattern is way harder than to facilitate it. So that awareness of firing the wrong muscles at the wrong time needs to be brought into many different movements in many planes of motion. So they, athletic populations are really good at figuring something out fast in a small way. But then you move them on to a sport-specific pattern, and they're right back into that old, crappy, small pattern again. Mm-hmm. As you start to integrate the isolated movement pattern or the isolated joint, you start to bring it into more planes of motion and more sport-specific movements. For example, the goalies, when we're in there, they're often in a butterfly. They're often pretending they have a blocker or a glove. And then we stop, okay, go back to where you happen to cheat. Are you cheating? And then they might pretend we might get them up against the post And then I might start throwing things at them and stop, go back and check in what your cheat patterns are. And then we cue a little bit and then off they go. And I think there's a great cook who talks about being really quiet when you coach. So the better they get, the more you, the less you say, because I don't want them to be able to hear my nagging voice in the background, constantly doing what I say. I want them to make their own corrections. And then I know that pattern is starting to become a more automatic pattern. So again, we start little, we make sure that the things that are inhibited need to stay inhibited, facilitate the right muscles, and then start to take them into bigger movements, more planes of motion, and more sports-specific patterning, saying less, just telling them they did a good job when they did a good job. 
kind of how we go through the whole continuum. So that sounds a little bit, one of the analogies I use with, with um, the people I work with is if you can feel it, you can fix it. Yes. Uh, and until you can feel it, yes. you'll never fix it. And, and um, you know, I mean, that's, and that's true for everything and specifically hard in swimmers because you've got so much um, feedback on the surface of your skin because the water is swimming around and you can't tell them exactly what the mo when the moment of correctness is. They go out and they swim 25 meters. You meet them on the other end and said, okay, so on that third stroke <laughs> off the kick, uh, went off the wall, that was right. And they're like, <laughs> so that, that lag between the actual moment of correctness and feedback, not being able to identify it is, was, it was always super challenging when I was coaching swimming. But yeah, that whole concept, if you can feel it, you can fix it. And then once they can feel it, then you just have to ask facilitating questions. That's really, really powerful. So how do you identify, I mean, part of it I'm sure is experience, but when you see working with defensive tackle from the NFL, which as much as you watch sport, you don't know what it's like to come off the line and, oh. and come up against someone who weighs 330 pounds on the other what? side with all that force. So, I mean, there must be, like, you must be learning all the time. I, I love, I love sports and I love, learning about sports like the ability to sit back and learn so my two biggest passions if you know me what you do is I love to learn and I love to play so my job allows me to do both and I remember the first time I had a nationally ranked alpine skier in the studio and I looked at her and she's a big strong woman and I said so when you're going around the gates now I learned to ski at 28 in western Canada so let me tell you when I ski you here like it's, it's not pretty and I looked at her I said so how do you go around the gates she looked at me like this I said, well, what? And so she basically lay down on the studio floor. She goes, I'm like this when I go around the gates. I'm like, yeah. oh, right. And it's those epiphany moments of what you do and what I see and what you're thinking and what I'm seeing are two very different things. So yeah, my elbow is this high off of the, yeah, off of the yeah, snow totally. at, at 100 kilometers an hour. In my helmet the entire time. Like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm not going to take that up. That's not appealing. But you, you constantly learn and you're constantly evaluating. You have to put yourself in a place where you have to be able to say, I don't know what that feels like. Can you show me? So no. what's your process in understanding what the actual sequencing and the forces are? So this is going to be a terrible answer and <laughs> I'm going to give it to you anyway. I have a friend who says everybody has a superpower. You have to mm -hmm. figure out what your superpower is. My friend, <laughs> it's embarrassing calls me Neo from the Matrix. He's like, my superpower, sorry, Fraser, <laughs> I can see your face right now, is to see movement. I did just what I do. I get movement. And I go back to that whole story in grade 13. It's like that moment clicked where I went, okay, so if you do this movement, well, because the deltoid attaches here, it's got to pull, but it's got the opposite from the lats. And if you're rotating down with the head of the femur, then the rotator cuff has to do this. So therefore, I'm going to start with a serratus. My head just goes, do, 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 And that's what I love to do. And I couldn't even tell you, if I was training a client half the time, if you said, okay, Sal, what are you doing here? I'm like, uh, and I actually have to slow down and think about what I'm doing. Because to me, it's just, if a movement looks wonky, then I can play with it. As long as I've gotten the athletes by, and I'm like, you're going to have to tell me what you need to do in this part of your job. Because I can see what doesn't look right, but I can't necessarily tell you why it doesn't and maybe because from the time i was 18 i've spent time analyzing people and watching people walk and you have to be really careful if you're on the subway watching people because they'll turn and stare at you but you just it's constant constant analyzing of movement 
Like I, I can't stop it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's that thing that I love to do. And I think cause I've done it since I was 18 years old, which was just four years ago. Um, I, I continue to do it all the time. So it, it's kind of an inherent. So you're essentially practicing constantly, oh, whether I, you're working or not working. Totally. You're, you're, you're constantly like going, Oh, that sucks. That's five things there. And then there's another yeah. five <laughs> things over there. And, right. Um, I'm really fun to hang out with. So much fun. <laughs> All right. So here's a question for you. How, how do you scale yourself? Um, you, know, you say like movement, breaking down movement is your superpower, right? So I come to work for, for SPT training. Yeah. And, um, Which is now called Link. <laughs> it's called Link. Yeah. You might want to change your website. Well, that's part of the whole... <laughs> Of that whole, yeah. yeah. Um, so I go and work for Link for you. Yeah. And I start off interning and I watch you nag the athletes and tell them what they're doing wrong and then, and then slowly break it down, being facetious for sure. Um, but then how do, when I say how do you scale yourself, literally how do you grow your business? so that now you can rely on somebody else to do what you do who doesn't necessarily wasn't born with the superpower. So, <laughs> I don't, it's funny hearing that back. Um, and I think everybody in this industry suffers a little bit from this because we all have uh, something about our personality that makes us very good at what we do. If you've ever done one of your workshops, everybody knows Fraser and everybody wants to do more of Fraser's workshop. Like well, some of us have many things, but, but anyway. <laughs> no, no, just one, just one, <laughs> just one. <laughs> um, but in terms of doing what I do, because it's, it's niche, like I don't know, and I don't even know what to call myself, truth be told. Like I'm core based, I'm Pilates based. Somebody said I should be a movement therapist. I'm like, oh, I don't know if that really tells the story of what I do. I have people who work with me, but the apprenticeship training or the mentorship is, it's kind of long and laborious. Cause you just, in my opinion, you have to spend time analyzing movement, whether you're watching sports or watching clients or watching people, and you have to put hands on bodies. You have to try and like, oh, that wasn't right. It's, it's a lot of hands-on practice time. So I have five people who work with me right now and I've done tons of courses and people, see a little bit of it in a course, but then you have to go and you actually have to apprentice and practice and have somebody to ask questions. So if I'm working on somebody, I will often have an instructor right beside me, whether they're mentoring or whether they're working with me and say, okay, why are you doing that? And it's questions in real time that seem to work. Because if I just tell you, well, you need to find the thoracic placement in order to find the upward rotation of the scapula in order to find the head of the humerus, people's eyes glaze over. Like you actually have to see it in both athletic and non-athletic or recreationally athletic bodies. I don't know if that answers your question. It kind of does. But so when people, um, when people come to you or people come to your courses, where do you start with them? So we always start. So I tend to teach a lot of courses, both to fitness professionals and to healthcare practitioners. So a lot of my courses are based for physios and chiros mm -hmm. and physios and chiros are excellent diagnosticians. Like they can find stuff that I can't find. They can feel stuff that my hands will never feel. But where their skill set tends to have a, a gap in it is adding load appropriately to a body. So they know the exercises, but they can't quite figure out how to bias it back or regress it back so that you don't have a whole bunch of different pulls going on that joint. Mm -hmm. 
So I end up teaching a lot of healthcare practitioners. Okay, here's how you regress exercises. Here's how you isolate this joint or this muscle. Here's how you deal with a spondylolisthesis here if you've got a rotator cuff here and you still need to get them back on the ice. So it's building that whole thing together. So we start with that group with load and mechanics. With the fitness professionals we start with here's how the body's working. Here's the muscles that pull on this mm-hmm. and here's the lines of pull that you want to try and take. So it depends on what population or where you're coming at and it's a complete different group if you've got the sports and conditioning coaches for the athletes mm-hmm. or the performance coaches then you start in a place of here's where your athletes lacking. Here's what they have to find and here's how we're going to do it. So basically your approach is different depending on on the on the knowledge background that very, very people much. are coming into so you're yeah. having to meet them in different places to get them into the same into the same yeah. spot. What of the people that you've had working with you what are the skills that they have coming in that predetermine their success the most? Like if I wanted to come my man the stuff that's always like was really interesting I want to I want to understand more of it. It's what's what's the what, what are the things the prerequisites that you find have been most most valuable? In terms of non-formal education, I'd probably say curiosity, vulnerability, and the desire to learn a ton. Cuz in my opinion, I I know my lane. I'm not going to go out of my lane. I'm not going to do any needling to anybody. I don't have a license to touch. I certainly am not going to go and spotless somebody doing a deadlift because that would be a bad idea. But it's 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 people who are comfortable in their lane. So it's people who are people who are comfortable saying I'm going to live in that neuromuscular recruitment, repatterning, motor control kind of lane is the first thing. But then an intense curiosity, like how does it work? Why does it how why how why? And then the ability and I say vulnerability because half the time I I don't know. I got to find that out. So it's the ability to say I'm not sure why that's working or not working. I'm going to try and find out and do you hurt? Am I doing the wrong thing? Cuz you don't always know you're going to go down the right path and you have to be able to ask your client like if you hurt later I need to know about it because then we have to reboot our programming. So it's the ability to ask questions, want to learn, have a laugh cuz if you can't laugh at this stuff you're lost cuz it can be dry as stink. Right. But it's it's those qualities that make you tenaciously hungry for knowledge. So it sounds like a combination of willingness to not know okay. and to admit that. Yeah. Along with which I think I mean and I highlight these because I think they're incredibly important regardless just for knowledge acquisition. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever pathway you're on, a willingness to ask a question. Oh yeah. about hey, I don't know or how are you doing that even if you think you already really a great example I could go to a Kobe Bryant example of someone who I saw this interview with um JJ Reddick was a great shooter um but nowhere close to the overall skill level of a Kobe Bryant superstar. Yeah. And this is while they was at USA basketball so you know the highest level and Kobe Bryant saying to 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 Redick hey you know would you like to shoot with me later and JJ going oh great this, this sounds awesome and going shooting and it taking him about 25 minutes to realize that Kobe Bryant was just trying to sponge everything he possibly could from from this interaction where he's like he asked him to come shoot with him and he was like grilling him the questions and how do you do this and how do you do that and just like that and like you said an intense curiosity for someone who already had it at it and not afraid to ask a question and i think many people are almost 
it's almost admitting admitting you don't know something is like admitting a, a fault and it's just the opposite it's huge so when i started working with goalies years ago i uh, hockey goalies i knew what a butterfly was i knew what a stance was i knew how to go against the post but when i started saying okay when you're in this stance and you're up what's this called and somebody would tell me and what do you need to do with your blocker and he would or she would show me like ah okay so to be confident enough to say i don't really know that part but I'm going to find out and we're going to learn together, gives enormous trust to your athlete. Like you, we go to fitness conferences and there's a group of presenters who you see at a fitness conference going to other presenters' conference, other presenters sessions mm -hmm. and taking notes. And I love it because it's, it shows everybody else as a community, there's tons to learn and we can learn from each other and we give kudos to each other and you put it all out there. And the more, the more you know, the more you realize you don't have a clue and there's so much more to learn. So I'd say in my little niche of what it is that I do, that is hugely important, both for your clients and for the industry as a whole. So we talked about, you know, like some of the, some of the prerequisites are these, just these innate things like be curious, be willing to ask questions, be willing to be wrong, have a sense of humor about yourself and about the general situation. But what about the formal education or that educational background? Like what sets me up to, to be you basically to understand your world better than maybe others? So I, I'm fortunate. I did a phys ed degree and we got to work on cadavers and we got to do biomechanics and I got to work in a biomechanics lab. And we've talked about this before, Fraser. I learned a lot. I learned more when I had to go teach people. So it's that, it's that, I've seen it once and now I have to be able to explain it to somebody else. One of my instructors who works on our team, he has an engineering degree. Mm -hmm. He did MMA training and he was an elite football player. So he takes this amazing engineering brain and applies it to sport and the body and does fa fabulously well. I have another instructor who has an anthropology degree, but she did dance for years. So she sees movement and she's got this intense curiosity that we talked about and she tries to learn constantly. So in our industry years ago, when we started, you could do a six hour certification and off you went. If you were, especially if you were young, buff, you were a great right. trainer. But now I think with a certification, you need to constantly accept the fact that you will never stop learning. Like there are so many amazing courses in our industry, so many amazing authors, so many journals, and then to take them and the, the most important part in my world is to be able to apply it. So to spout out that you're doing something, but then the application not marry the theory or you're not actually doing what you say you're doing because you haven't stopped and gone, well, is it really this or why and how is this working? I think that ability to apply it and to practice it is huge. So that takes us, there's a couple of things there. And before we go past it, because I, I, I promised at the very beginning that I'd ask you about, you know, we talked about lines of pull mm -hmm. and, um, and sequencing and things that are, you know, out of, out of line or one thing affecting another in a distant part of the body. Can you talk a little bit about that tensegrity concept and how it applies in, in your world? So Maybe I we start off by describing what tensegrity is just for folks that may not be familiar with the, with the term and, and you know, a simple, simple way of how it works and then you can kind of apply it to the body. So in the simplest form, I look at how the muscles pull on each other and then how they pull apart. So if you keep, think of forces, you have compressive forces and you have mm -hmm. tensile forces. 
and I'm going to keep this very simple. Feel free to jump in if you want. Um, so when I look at how something moves or how somebody moves, I look at the joints in a couple different ways. You look at the compressive forces, which is muscles. Mm -hmm. You look at the tensile forces, which is muscles in the fascial system. And you look at the shear forces, which is everything coming together. So in my world, I like to look at how the lines of pull go from joint to joint. And I also like to look at how that force pulls them apart. So how are they balancing between their left shoulder all the way down to the right heel? If you want to go on fascial trains, you can go on fascial trains or groups of muscles. If you want to go on lines of pull, you can. But I tend to put the compressive forces and the tensile forces together so that not all movements are compressive and not all movements are that eccentric or that tensile control. So back to your earlier question, when an athlete or client is starting to get the integrated movement, we go on these great big long pulling things, we go on bouncing exercises, we go on reaching exercises to see if they can keep the stability and that reach as much as they can in the compress because we're very good as humans at compressing. We're not very good at finding cross patterns and that big long reach in stability exercises. I don't know if that answers your question at all. It does a little. It's just, I mean, I'm more, more trying to get at your approach and, and, and how that, those sorts of things integrate. So how does, how does, as you're watching that stuff, how does that inform your next step? Uh, so I don't have a plan necessarily. So if, if you came in and you have a labral tear, and I know you love basketball, I know you did triathlon, and I know you're strong, I have an idea of what I'm going to play with you. So my friend Fraser, who tends to lean to the right a little bit and does wonky things with his shoulders and has had some surgeries, etc., I already have an idea of where you could go. So then we're going to get on the mat and we're going to start doing, I don't know, maybe some low load knee out to the side to see if you can stabilize your spine and your pelvis. Stuff Basically, to make me feel bad about myself, essentially. <laughs> but and I then love <laughs> then I point out how much better I am than you, and then we move right. on. Yeah, then we go from there. Yeah. We have been workouts together, let's be clear. <laughs> Just payback. <laughs> okay, so then I discover maybe you grip your right hip flexor more than your left. Maybe you did a workout recently, and that hip flexor is really jacked up. Who knows? So then I say, okay, what's going to oppose that? Let's look at your hip extension from various positions. And if that's going well, I will start to load up the hip extension. If it's not going well then maybe let's take you into that long fascial line or that long eccentric pull and see if your lats are affecting your pelvis into your hip flexor. So it becomes a bit of a check and balance. If this is good, we're going to go this way. If this is not good, we're going to go this way. It's like choose your own adventure books. Right. If yes, then turn to page. So sure. this is kind of how we bob and weave. So in my world, anatomy and biomechanics is really important. And I think our industry compared to where it used to be is vastly improved but when we started people didn't really know their anatomy nearly as well as they know today and I think the more you know your anatomical references and your biomechanical pulls and motor control mm -hmm. exercise physiology wherever you depend the more you know the better you're going to be able to program and bob and weave with your tool belt so we're starting to transition over into this this idea of education specifically for the fitness industry and and you know its effectiveness one way or another and 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 the journey that people go through um what are your thoughts on i know we both spent a lot of time in education with the industry mm. what do you think of education the fitness industry as it stands right now like what, what do you feel is doing is 
is going very well with it? And, and what do you think are opportunities to, to improve it or pathways that people should be considering? That's a really, really good question. Um, I'm th- full of them. Yeah, you really yes. are. <laughs> um, I think there are, compared to where we used to be, there are so many different opportunities of different courses. I think <laughs> what our industry does not do well is we make something darling of the industry. So for a while it was, I don't know, if I go back to the Pilates world, it was the TA. The TA could wash your dishes, mend your clothes, figure out your relation. It could do everything. And everybody focused on it. And then it became the fascia. And fascia was really exciting and really neat. And, and I think that stuff's hugely important. I think there are so many different courses that you can take on different specific things that I would highly recommend taking as many as you can. What I don't think we do well is we get stuck in our buckets or our dogmas. So if you do any course or any certification, that becomes the end all and the be all and that's all you can do and everybody else does something incorrectly. And I think where we excel as educators or as trainers is when you take the snippets of all these different courses and all these great minds and all these great ideas and start to put them together with the actual science of what the body can do and its application, I think that's when we get really quite amazing. So the more people start to collaborate or do projects together or share education like you're doing right now, I think it it takes our industry way, way up from where we are. So I think the opportunity to learn is much, much better than it used to be. The Getting stuck in your dogmas, I think, is somewhere where we can, as an, as an industry, continue to move forward and blow past those barriers because I will never go and teach Olympic weightlifting, but I certainly know what Olympic weightlifting is and what, how it should be done. I just won't teach it. I just need that knowledge to be able to bring it back to my business so I can talk that talk and understand what my athletes are doing. So, I mean, it sounds to me like you're talking about, you know, be as open as you can to as many different sources. Um, and then you like seek those inputs that you're looking for. And then, and when you talk about dogma and I've looked at it before, I've described it as continuum running, right? Uh-huh. I mean, we, we, they charged, we charged along the continuum and stood way over on the teeter totter of, of the transverse abdominus. And then we realized, Oh, okay. And we got argued about how it worked in different ways to make it brace or hollow or whatever the hell we were going to talk about. This is a long time ago. And then we charged back and you talked about fashion. We said, Oh, fashion. We never even thought about fashion before. And, and here's this thing that does a lot more than we ever thought it did. And the anatomist used to cut it away so they could get at the muscles and yeah. can't believe how stupid they were. And we charge all of those gather over to the other yeah. side and the, the, the teeter totter tips totally. as opposed to, and then you're wrong because I'm right. And so it becomes a battle of egos. And totally. it sounds to me like what you're talking about is, and you mentioned a little bit earlier, the, the smartest people I know I've ever met are the first people that, that they describe like, Hey, I don't, I don't know anything. Like I understand a lot about this much, Hundred percent. all these other, these other things. And it's a, it's an easy trap to fall in, especially um, as you're early in, as people are early into the industry. I agree. Here's what I believe and I'm going to follow this path and this must be right and everything else is wrong. And you have to start. You have to start somewhere. So if you're just getting into it, you need your building blocks. It's like learning to read. You need to learn your ABCs and then you can put a word together and then maybe a sentence together and then you can learn a different language. You need to be able to do that in steps. But to say, I will only ever say A, B, C, D, E will keep you stuck in only ever saying A, B, C, D, E. Like, There's so many people who are 
doing so many cool and different things and questioning constantly, well, why do you do it that way? And it's, it's not because you want to be better than or, or no more. It's just you actually want to understand. Teach me. Teach me why you're doing it this way and then apply it to your lane and link yourself with as many amazing people in your industry as you can. I have good friends who I go to all the time. I have physios, chiros. My, my network is huge that I will say, I can't do that. That's not my lane. Go see this mm-hmm. person. Go see Fraser do some of this stuff. Go see this chiropractor. Go see. Yep. And then let's see how we're doing. Let's shift again. <laughs> I want to talk about your business specifically. So, I mean, obviously we're in a, in a, in a, in a period of tremendous change mm. uh, and, and evolution. And some would say, you know, in challenge for sure. Um, but with those changes and evolutions, there's, there's opportunities as, in the same way as there's challenges. Yeah. How do you foresee your business growing, changing shape, evolving as the world and industry does over these next, you know, however many years looking at your business now versus a year ago, what, what is your, what's your direction? My business currently has three pillars, let's say. So I have education, mm-hmm. I have performance athletes and I have quote unquote a studio. So I have a space in Toronto where I have some instructors. We all work out of there. We have a TRX. We have Pilates equipment. We have a cable machine. We have different various toys to play on, which is really fun. Um, I travel and teach in presentations. I host workshops. People come and do courses with me. And then I have the professional athlete piece where I train professional athletes or I go watch them do their sport, make changes to what they have to do, etc. So within those three businesses, I can do stuff in-house, which most of it was up mm-hmm. to about March 16th, right. and then it all changed. But prior to that, I also, because I've trained pro hockey players for years, they go off to Europe to play. They go off and play on their schedule. I was doing virtual sessions and have been for probably the last six to seven years. So that pivot to virtual sessions for me was easy because I do it. It was just training the clients. And I think where a lot of people got stuck is all of a sudden they had to do virtual and they were worried about was it Zoom or FaceTime and what's my background and is my lighting okay and is my hair okay? And basically all we did, my business link was just turn on our phones, call people and say, are you ready? Like if the background was the background, great. If the dog was barking, so be it. If mm-hmm. kids were clamoring. And I think that ability to, again, be vulnerable and be yourself is hugely important because in virtual training, you get to train a skill set that you don't use when you're in the studio. I can walk around somebody and see different things. If mm-hmm. I'm training them virtually, I have to be a lot more in tune. I have to make sure that, okay, now move your camera over here. Now you move here. It almost becomes more of an educational piece for the client. Mm -hmm. So I think that ability to just pivot and try and take a challenge. Like I think half of it as we move forward, we don't know what's going to happen. I think to try is hugely important and not get stuck in the, what if it's not perfect? Mm Because I don't think it's ever going to be perfect. I think it's going to go there and give it a go. For sure. And in lots of cases, in, in person, it's not necessarily perfect. <laughs> it often is not. <laughs> it's, it's when you look back at your sessions that you did 20 years ago, you're like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. So what are the opportunities you're seeing right now and or the dangers or risks to your business? I think the opportunities are huge in that in terms of taking courses, we used to be stuck if there was a course going on in Japan where well, you couldn't mm-hmm. go to Japan because you couldn't justify leaving your family. Now you can hit a really good course that's online and block yourself out and take that course. Mm-hmm. I think 
the downfall of that is that often within those courses there's a built-in application and I'm really big on theory marrying application because I think sometimes in our industry there's a huge disconnect and I think that gets really dangerous so I think if you do decide to do those courses or you take those courses or offer them you have to be able to find or offer a practical component in order to practice the skills and then find a mentor find somebody who you trust who will lead you down the right path and say can you help me with this will you watch me train this client and give me feedback will you help me understand what I'm doing because hands-on is amazing especially if you're a kinesthetic learner and if you're if you're that way bound our industry will need to set up parameters and places that you can find those mentorships and apply this new knowledge that you're able to access and the other thing is anybody can pop up online and say, I'm an expert in this. Right. And that's always been our industry. So it's, it's making sure your credentials are what your credentials say they are. So you, mentor, you mentioned mentorship. And uh, in a previous episode, I got a chance to talk with John Berardi. And we spent a lot of time talking about mentorships from both sides, both being a mentor and then seeking yeah. a mentor, being a mentee. Um, who have been some of the most influential mentors that you've experienced that really kind of helped shape shape you professionally there's been a lot um and they're all in snippets and moments um mm -hmm. can i embarrass you yeah uh, sure so watching fraser present it's a show and you would be a mentor because you go in and you present to people while you teach and you make them laugh and it's a show and it's fun but you're also there connecting one-on-one -on -one. I got to experience that by walking into a presentation that you did in Thailand one time and, and giggling and I'm like, okay, we're good. Like, it's fun to watch that. Other mentors have been profs who have just kind of made something made sense and not made people within their class feel dumb. That's a huge one. Mm -hmm. There's a sports and conditioning coach in Toronto named Matt Nickel, who is probably one of the smartest and most humble men I've ever met. And he will continue to be humble and just... He puts his head down and just gets results time after time after time again. And he's taught me, you know what? You don't need to be the biggest and the brightest. You need to put your head down and you need to be there for your clients. So different ways of delivering, different ways of dealing with the population at large. All of those things, I think, have kind of shaped me to hopefully be better than what I used to be. Do you seek mentors and thank you first of all I, that was very sweet of you to say I'm, I'm honored <laughs> to be be included even though it's just because you're just talking to me and that's all well, um, I'm, I know I'm, I'm just I'm just <laughs> you. Um, but is there a process you go through to like seeking out mentors uh, or do you just kind of they just happen organically it, it kind of goes with my life plan somebody asked me years ago when I was training at the Y actually he asked me he's a very successful gentleman in Edmonton he said what is your plan Sally I, what do you mean, what's my plan? He said, well, what's your, you need a five-year plan and a 10-year plan and a 20-year plan. I'm like, I don't have a plan. I just, I want to have fun. I want to experience life. I want to learn. So I'd never really seek out somebody in particular. It always tends to be happenstance. So I happen to be somewhere like, oh, that gels with me because of this. So I find The universe that. sends you the right person, basically. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. a huge, huge believer in karma. Like, I, I do believe that not everything happens for a reason, but if you put it out there, generally, if it's meant to be, it is. It's that whole idea of actions need to be started with ideas. And so you've got to put it out there, and then you've got to say it, and then you've got to action it. And then wonders of wonders, it, it 
kind of appears. So I've found the people who inspire me in different ways in my life and in my business kind of end up as a, because I happen to be at the right place at the right time again. Well, I want to switch finally, because there's a thing I like to do to, to kind of close out these conversations. I call them five and five. Oh dear. Okay. Yes, I'm ready. So just quick reactions as Gosh. best you, as best you can. <laughs> What are you most excited about or focused on in your own training right now? Oh, what am I most focused on? I'm actually working with a sprint coach. He was a uh, Olympic hurdler, 400 meter hurdler from Australia. And for the first time ever, I'm doing sprint training and it's killing me because I'm terrible at it, but it's really like terrible, terrible. And he looked at me and said, when's the last time you sprinted? I'm grade six. Kind of gave me one of these. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. <laughs> so he's timing you with a minute hand? Oh yeah, like we're doing A's and B's and uh, it's, that's awesome. Very cool. I love that. Brilliant. It's out of my comfort zone. It's terrible though. <laughs> oh, most things are out of our comfort zone. That yeah. tends to be they go hand in hand with being yeah. terrible. Who are you currently inspired by? Andy Kyoto. He's a goalie coach in Toronto. He I trained him when he was in the NHL. From the moment I met him, he coaches me in a really annoying way, makes me uncomfortable, but he's also one of those intuitive questions you and challenges you on what you're going to do and where you're going to go and is very good at delivering self-confidence. So Andy Kyoto currently inspires me. That's pretty cool. So now I want you, I want you to imagine oh you get the whole day to yourself. I am sweating. You know that, right? <laughs> This is not my comfort zone. Don't know what I'm going to ask. No, um, so you've got the whole day to yourself. Yes. What do you decide to do physically? Like what are your greatest physical passions outside of traditional fitness? What are you, what are you going to? I'm on my bike and I ride for a very long time. That's an easy one. I just go and go and go. So I, I have been told many times in my life I need to meditate, which I always answer, I don't have enough time to meditate. Which is <laughs> so for me being on a bike that cadence, the methodical turning over, being outside, being on my own, or with somebody else, and I just mm -hmm. follow their I reel. just don't talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I just have to draft. I don't lead anybody. I just put my head down and watch their reel. Like, <laughs> to me, I would, in a heartbeat, that or go jump in water somewhere. Same idea. Very cool. What do you have coming up next? What are you most excited about? Today? Dinner. Um, next. <laughs> What's next? It's a good question. I was supposed to go to Japan to teach a course, but I'm not doing that. But there is the opportunity of doing that virtually, which would be really fun because it's with a really amazing physiotherapist in Japan and it would be fun to run that course. So trying to see if that would work as well as a mentorship that I'm getting off the ground. So if that comes to fruition, that would be really cool too because I, I would love that. So where, where do people find you? And so I got one more question after this. They can email me at sallybelanger.com or you can look at my website, which is linkamm.ca. Link Advanced Movement Mechanics. I, I bought the name. I didn't come up with it. <laughs> I inherited awesome. it. Hmm. All right. So my last thing, I mean, you're still a young person. So <laughs> I was wondering how you're going to go with this. Yes. Is this your life's work? It's a good question. I made a joke years ago when I was 20. Like if I'm on a stage doing fitness presentations in my 50s, I'm going to, which is coming very, very, very close. Yes, it will always be something in teaching. It will always be something in movement. It will always be something in sports. I love it. I absolutely love what I do. And to me, it's, it's more of a 
passion. I get to get up and play every day with people. Like this is part of my work. This is this is fun. I get to travel and and walk around different cities with some of my best friends in the world and teach people and put hands on bodies and teach people how to move. Yeah, I'm stuck here. It's great. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the TRX Procast. As a thank you, we'd like to offer you 30 days of free access to the TRX Training Club, which features hundreds of amazing workouts with some of the best trainers in the world. Get your access by the link in the episode description below.